Did you know that you could earn ASHA CEUs for listening to these podcast episodes? I think this might be the most fun and most convenient way to earn CEUs ever. Whether you are sitting by your pool during quarantine or uh, trying to fill your commutes once we head back into a normal life here, uh, the opportunities are endless and it's so incredibly convenient. And the best part is if you use the code TALKING20, you get $20 off the PodCourse membership. That is a steal. So if you're interested in getting started, head to speechtherapypd.com slash teletherapy. Uh, click the button at the top of the page to become a member, and then just scroll down to the PodCourse membership section and click that white button. Can't wait to see you in all of the future courses. Hello, and welcome to Talking Teletherapy, a weekly webinar and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, where we dive into the ins and outs of teletherapy for speech pathologists. Each episode of Talking Teletherapy is worth 0.1 ASHA CEU when you complete the accompanying webinar on SpeechTherapyPD.com. So go ahead and visit SpeechTherapyPD.com teletherapy for more information about earning ASHA CEUs along with this podcast. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm an outpatient speech and language pathologist. I work with adults in a hospital, and I also host the Speech Uncensored podcast that covers all topics related uh, to medical speech and language pathology. And so now, without further ado, um, let's get on topic for tonight and hear from our guest. All right, hello, welcome everyone. Um, my name is Leanne Porter. I'll be your um, host this evening. I'm joined by Dr. Georgia Melandraki, and we're going to be talking about telepractice for dysphagia, considerations for safe and ethical implementation. So, um, I want to tell you a little bit more about Dr. Melandraki. She is an associate professor of speech language and hearing sciences and biomedical engineering at Purdue University and a board certified specialist in swallowing disorders. She investigates rehabilitative and telehealth interventions in dysphagia. Dr. Melandraki has been conducting research and offering clinical and consultation services for dysphagia management via telehealth for the past 14 years. So this is not new information for Dr. Melandraki like at all. This is totally her wheelhouse. Um, additionally, uh, she's the co-chair of the newly formed ISHA Telehealth Task Force and a member of the new Dysphasia, Dysphasia Research Society COVID-19 Task Force. She also serves as the secretary treasurer of the Dysphasia Research Society and her work is funded by the National Institutes of Health the Purdue Research Foundation, and several private foundations. So welcome, Dr. Melandraki. How are you today? Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Can you hear me and see me okay? I can. I can see you. Okay. Do you um, want me to keep the video on? I wasn't sure. Pardon? Did, do you want me to keep the video on? Yes. Okay. Yes. okay. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. 
Yeah, pleasure. This is such a treat. I'm really excited to pick your brain and learn all the things. Um, all right, so like um, I mentioned at the beginning, our topic is considerations for safe and ethical implementation of telepractice for dysphagia. So where do we start? <laughs> at yeah. the yeah, sure. Well, first of all, uh, one of the things that um, a lot of people are asking me about are differences in some definitions. So I don't know if you want to start with some kind of defining some terms very quickly. So yeah. I know that um, I know you've had a, a lot of podcasts uh, through uh, your website already. So if this is too redundant, let me know and I can, uh, I can definitely not uh, uh, talk extensively about it. But I know so the basic terms that we hear a lot about is telemedicine, telepractice, and telehealth. And very briefly, telemedicine is primarily a term that is reserved mostly for uh, physicians and for the medical professions. And it relates to remote clinical services for those professions. Telehealth is a more broader term that includes both clinical remote services, but also it includes things like even e-learning for health-related reasons or even health administration through the internet, for example, you know, EM EMRs and things like that. And then telepractice is the term that ASHA uses and has adopted. Um, and they adopted it because they wanted to make sure we have a term that is specific to everything we do, which a lot of times is outside the medical setting, like in the schools, for example, and that encompasses all of our facilities. So these are the three main terms. Um, however, one thing that I always like to point out is that irrespective of what the general definitions are, um, very interestingly, what I learned a few years ago, and I was very surprised by it, is that every state may define these terms a little bit differently in their laws and regulations. <laughs> mm. So I think one of the key uh, things uh, that clinicians need to know right away from the beginning is that uh, you have to really know the laws in your state and hopefully state associations are being a little bit more active now and uh, letting people know about different regulations and policies. But every state may define these terms a little bit differently. So they may be allowing you to do things a little bit differently. So it's very important to know uh, what is the state by state definition. Mm -hmm. So these are some just general definitions. Um, uh, another thing that a lot of times um, I like covering in the very beginning of these types of uh, interviews or podcasts are some kind of main points uh, that uh, or misconceptions that people may have about telehealth. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can talk maybe more specifically about dysphagia as well. So the, the one thing is that, uh, and hopefully you have, a lot of your attendees have heard this already, is that telehealth is a service delivery model and it's not a service by itself. Um, the reason why I mention this is because a lot of times um, in a lot of communications I've had, and I've, I've talked to probably hundreds of clinicians in the last few months because of this explosion of uh, the need for telehealth due to this pandemic. Um, but I, I'm, one of misconceptions has been, and one of the biggest questions is, um, uh, when can I use telehealth versus in-person services and the way the question is being asked um, is implies that telehealth is a little bit of a lesser than approach. So ideally, under ideal conditions, and I don't, I know we're not talking about ideal conditions now, but ideally, we we want to be talking about telehealth um, as uh, just a service delivery model that should actually not have no regulatory distinction between, you know, there should be no regulatory distinction between telehealth versus in-person services services. Mm -hmm. 
So that's, that is something that I think is a misconception. And even now, even papers that have been published uh, on COVID and dysphagia have um, shown that the clinicians that publish those papers are looking at telehealth as a lesser than approach. I understand the reasons. Mm -hmm. I think it is because, you know, the, the way things are right now, um, uh, you, you know, we don't have all the resources, we don't have the training, we don't have, you know, a lot of uh, optimal uh, situations uh, to be able to use it as an equal type of approach, but ideally that's what should be in our mind. So I just want to mention that from the beginning because I feel like it is, it is something that people are uh, often uh, confused about. Okay, so if I'm understanding, then, yes. you know, people are kind of seeing because we're in this kind of emergency status, then doing telehealth is um, like a band-aid for the situation rather than an equal um, model to deliver these services. It can be just as effective and just as good as in-person. And it, it doesn't need to be an either or. They, you can have these models simultaneously, not just in the circumstances of a pandemic, for example. Yes. And ideally, so I, somebody said that they cannot hear me very well. Can you hear me better now? I'll try to sit a little bit closer to the computer mic. Is, it, is this better? I just want to make sure they can hear me. Okay. I think so. I okay. do have my volume or my speaker volume up a little bit okay. higher. But okay. Yeah, I apologize about that. I don't know. I never know. Uh, I want what else I can do. Okay. We. I, 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 they're they're not typing anything. So hopefully they can hear me okay now. Um, yeah, that's exactly true. So in uh, in ideal scenarios, again, telehealth is. The actually when we are doing, for example, tele, uh, oh, I sound muffled. Okay, okay, I'm not sure. Is there anything in front of your speakers, or do you have papers on top of anything? Um, no, I don't think so. And I haven't received that comment before because I, I'm, I've been using this computer uh, for many of these types of things. I'll try to speak maybe a little louder, and hopefully that will help. Because I know it's recorded, and I, I would hate for this to not be recorded. Optim <laughs> optimally, I apologize about that. I don't know what's what's wrong. Um, yeah. So ideally, the whole idea of providing telehealth is, you know, telehealth is just a service delivery model. So what your service is not changing, right? Very, mm -hmm. If it is in person or via telehealth, or it shouldn't change. If it changes, then you shouldn't really be using telehealth. Now I know that that is very um, in, in, the, in, the, in today's scenario, in today's situation, this sounds very harsh. And that's why I'm saying that with adaptations, we can still use telehealth. But we have to make sure that um, we're using it less and less as a lesser uh, than approach. Mm -hmm. Because that's not, that's not the optimal way to use it. And, um, you know, ideally, the, the whole, the whole uh, purpose of uh, providing services via telehealth is that at one point, the word tele will completely go out of it services so that it should be as equal as possible okay okay all right so hopefully i'll, I'll speak a little a little louder and hopefully we can you can all hear me okay all right okay so um yeah i like that point that you made that the service delivery model shouldn't change the effectiveness of the services being provided as yes. long as the service provider is proficient at providing those services it's it's 
the model shouldn't impact the yeah. quality of the services being delivered. And telehealth doesn't mean that that person isn't receiving the highest level of services, as long as the provider is giving the best services. That kind yes, of and it, it's not only about the provider though, right? It's about the, uh, you know, the infrastructure that you have mm. available as well, right? The connectivity, yeah. the bandwidth, the technology available on both sides. So uh, it's not just that the clinician, of course the clinician has to be proficient, Mm -hmm. uh, but also those other types of resources have to be in place as well. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about this forever, but uh, if you have specific questions, I'm happy to try and answer them. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about yeah. some states define and have different terms for different um, considerations there. So are there guidelines um, for the provision of dysphagia therapy via telepractice? Um, where, where can we go to find out like? Yeah, so the, you're bringing up a very good point. Uh, the, the main guidelines that are available right now, uh, for example, the guidelines that we have uh, provided on our website, uh, uh, I think we are, uh, uh, I think I sent you the, the link to that website that has all those guidelines. So hopefully all the attendees will have access to that link. Um, and also ASHA has some guidelines as well, some uh, main guidelines, not about dysphagia specifically, but a lot of what is on the ASHA telepractice portal in terms of guidelines also applies to dysphagia. And these all uh, are what I would call safety and practical guidelines. So they provide some basic information on some essential um, uh, steps, legal safeguards, and some practical tips on implementation. Um, we have been invited to uh, write two papers for ASHA journals. Uh, so those, some of those guidelines will be more formally published and available to everybody through those publications in the next couple of months. Now, um, again, these are kind of safety and basic steps and practical guidelines. In terms of regulatory guidelines, here is where things become a little bit more muddy because um, these are difficult to create at a global or national level uh, because of the way regulations and laws are uh, and uh, are different, right, uh, from country to country and in the US even from state to state, as we've said before. So I think for regulatory guidelines, Ideally, each state association has a very important role to play here, and they should be the ones that are helping to create these guidelines. Uh, and some of them are more active than others. Um, and I do recognize by saying that, that this is not an easy task, um, because laws and regulations for telehealth, even before this pandemic, they, they changed all the time. And now, um, uh, now the changes are even more, <laughs> happen more quickly. So even weekly, sometimes we will have new regulations or allowances for telehealth in specific states. So um, right now, regulatory guidelines, as far as I know, do not exist globally. But um, as I said, we have some practical guidelines that hopefully, uh, and we, we have had thousands of visits on our website. So hopefully a lot of people are using them and are being helped by them. And very soon those are gonna be published as well. And in terms of regulatory guidelines, hopefully, state associations will start um, developing some of those for their states. Excellent. Yeah. Um, this is like the million dollar question always. Yeah. So, and I'm like, I'm already so sorry about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell me about insurance reimbursements? Um, like, can we bill 
for providing dysphagia therapy via telehealth, telepractice? Well, you're correct. This is the million dollar question. And it's probably the one question that I don't think I can offer a satisfactory response to, but I don't think that anybody can. Yeah. (laughs) Feel a little better. Um, and, and in case it makes everybody feel a little better, I will say that in general, billing and reimbursement um, uh, is the most complex issue in general for telehealth. Even physicians, even during COVID, even physicians had difficulty getting reimbursed at times. So mm-hmm. if it makes us feel better, it's, it's a very complex issue um, across a lot of disciplines. Now, in terms of dysphagia specifically, so what do we know theoretically is that in some states, there have been some executive orders by, signed by governors uh, that allow uh, some feeding and swallowing therapy as well as other speech language therapy under Medicaid coverage. Uh, again, not in all states. It is a state by state specific thing for Medicaid, as we all know. So it, it will be very important to check with the Medicaid office of that uh, state and the state association to make sure. Medicare, unfortunately, although they've made a lot of, ASHA has made a really great advocacy effort in the last few months, I, I want to say. I know we frequently complain about ASHA, but I think they have really done a really great job in the last few months, especially. They have advocated so that Medicare now covers a lot of speech pathology services uh, uh, for, uh, that are provided via telehealth. But unfortunately, in the new rule that came out, uh, although several SLP codes were included, dysphagia codes were not included. So um, uh, a lot of other private insurance agencies follow what Medicare does and tells and tells them. So uh, for that reason, unfortunately, most of uh, coverage has to be private pay uh, right now, which is, it is unfortunate. Uh, um, I will say that ASHA, through their efforts, they have now provided uh, on their website um, state by state specific regulations, laws, and insurance coverage information. They provide PDFs uh, that compare between the different states. So, uh, and they update those PDFs pretty regularly. So, that's a good site to, uh, to visit often. Um, and ultimately, before initiating any telehealth services for really for any type of services, not just dysphagia. We need to um, check with the payer system of that specific patient, which I know is very time consuming. And we need to also um, do that in close collaboration with our billing and authorization department. So I don't have a a very clear answer on this or direct answer because there isn't any. So right now, uh, uh, reimbursement for dysphagia is limited, but, um, you know, we can still try to do a few things and see what is covered in specific situations. And we have to check on a specific um, uh, patient-by-patient basis. Okay. Um, So I think my next question is a little bit more about establishing a practice pattern, implementing this through, you know, distance. Um, can you speak a little bit about your own experiences yeah. providing dysphagia services um, through this medium? Yeah. Well, the first step, even before you know, the first step before you even talk about technology, talk, talk about technology or, or environment or specific, or give some specific tips. Um, the first step is always to look through things like patient privacy, confidentiality. Um, and making sure that all the legal safeguards are there, right? Licensure uh, types of things and all of that. And 
all of that is detailed on our web website guidelines. So please feel free to uh, to go there and look at all the kind of step by step guidance in that. Um, but it's it's very important. Although you know the um, there was some uh, allowance in terms of, for example, kind of relaxing some of the HIPAA laws uh, in terms of what platform to use and what uh, what is safe. Um, despite that, it's it's always advisable to try and think about patient safety and ensuring that you're using uh, a platform that is as um, uh, uh, you know as uh, as HIPAA aligned as possible. A lot of people use the word HIPAA compliant, but a platform cannot really be compliant. That term refers more to people and organizations. So a platform can be HIPAA aligned, and there are quite a few out there now. Uh, irrespective of the platform and the security measures you take, um, the other thing that we need to also uh, keep in mind in terms of a legal safeguard uh, uh, perspective is um, that we have to um, let the patients know what, what we're using, how safe it is, and the patient has to consent to this type of service delivery model. So there is a lot of uh, a lot of discussion about consent forms. So one of the first things that you need to do in a, after you review these guidelines is to really sit with your risk management team or your legal team and create a consent form specific to telehealth and telepractice that is going to uh, include all these legal safeguards that are going to protect you as a provider and protect your patient as well. And the patient will have to consent to that. Some uh, people do, uh, some facilities are okay in states and insurance agencies are okay with verbal consenting. Some need a written consent form. So uh, both are okay as long as you document that you received consent. So that's, so those are kind of like the prerequisite steps. So you have to go through this kind of legal and safety and privacy issues first and make sure those are in place. So that was one of the first things we did when we very first started doing any telehealth services uh, the first thing we did was actually met with the risk management team. And um, at that time, uh, there were very few laws and regulations. Indiana didn't have any telehealth laws. So it was kind of easier to start things because there was nothing regulating it <laughs> in some ways. Um, uh, but the, the, the legal team really helped us create a consent form, decide on uh, you know, what were the minimum kind of safety things we needed to have in place to feel that we are providing the services. Uh, securely and safely. So that's that's um, uh, that that's one one aspect that has to be uh, has to be considered. After that is considered, then that that's when you go into the practical, uh, into the into into the practical approach, and you are uh, looking at what now. What are the things that I need to know? So you need to understand the technology, and you need to understand what technology you have available, what technology the patient has available. Uh, because in the old, in old days, and especially in telehealth research, you know the environment was very well controlled. We usually would give patients uh, devices. Uh, you know, we would check the connectivity. We would have a lot of control over what is being used. But nowadays, patients are at home a lot of times, right? So we are providing the therapy either from a clinical office, sometimes even from home, and that has been allowed now in a lot of states. Um, so we have to look at what technology is available. Um, how are we connecting with the patient? Is the, is the platform we're using secure enough? It's always advisable to not do it from your home network, but through a third-party network like your employer's network when you connect with a patient for safety and legal issues. Um, 
look at connectivity and bandwidth. Do you have adequate bandwidth so that you do not lose connection, so that the patient can hear you and you can hear the patient really well, you can see what you need to see to do your clinical eval, for example, provide you can, you can hear what you need to hear uh, in order to provide good services as well. So you have to look at a lot of different uh, components. Um, so technology, connectivity, security of the connection, these are all very important uh, things to consider as well. Um, what resources the patient has for the things that you want to do. So a lot of times in the old days, uh, we do it less now, although we probably will start doing it again. We used to send a, a telekit to the patient that included, for example, a pair of gloves for the facilitator, or some tongue depressors, or a flashlight, or some uh, flavors for, ta for uh, taste or flavor testing, for example, so that uh, we would send that to the patient's home so that they have those resources available if they didn't already have them. And then the other important thing is to also ensure, and for dysphagia service delivery specifically, it's very important to also have a facilitator present, um, meaning somebody in the environment where the patient is who can help with technology who can help with safety issues and emergency situations uh, because we're talking about you know people with dysphagia and lots of things could happen or could go wrong um, and a, a person who can help with resources finding the resources or placement of the patient things like that um, one thing i want to point out about facilitators because I've, i have received this question a lot and I have seen a lot of uh, social media discussion about the use of facilitators and about how pe some people are fearful that they're gonna steal our jobs and things like that. Facilitators are not supposed to replace us. So they are exactly what the word implies, facilitators. So uh, some people use the word proxy. I would not use that word because I don't believe we have a proxy to do this. It is, they are facilitating. In the inpatient setting, it could be a nurse. They're not doing the eval for you, they shouldn't. They shouldn't be interpreting for you, right? They're just facilitating the approach so that you can see better, hear better, and interpret better what you see and hear, basically. So mm -hmm. these are, I think, I mean, there are probably steps that I forgot in there. Uh, and I, again, um, going back to the web guide, I think you're gonna see a lot of uh, uh, all this in a lot more detail being explained step by step. But those are at least some of the main things to, to consider before you start. The environment, the facilitators, having an emergency plan in place in, in case something happens, that's, that's a, a very, very important thing. And actually your emergency plan should be included in your consent form as well mm -hmm. to, cover, to cover all your bases. But these are some things to, to keep in mind. Okay, excellent. Um, we've had two questions yes. that I thought we could hit on real quick. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of those questions was, are we allowed to bill patients for private pay when they're Medicare recipients? Yeah, and so, yeah. so that's a good question. So my understanding is, my understanding based, and, and uh, I will refer this person back to the ASHA site because they have a really updated, uh, on June 26th, they updated the site and they provided information on that. My understanding is because the, the codes for dysphagia were not included in the new rule, that we could actually do that. But that's my understanding from reading. Um, I don't read, because we're a university clinic and right now actually we provide the uh, pre or only private pay services, we don't deal with Medicare yet, something we will start dealing with. But my understanding from that ASHA website is that because those codes were not, the dysphagia codes were not included in um, the new rule, we are allowed to uh, bill Medicare uh, uh, through a private pay, um, 
agreement that mm. you're recipients. But I will, I will refer you to that side, make sure you understand the same thing I understood, but that's what I understood from reading that website. Okay. And um, another question was, um, let's see, using a cell phone as a flashlight. Yes. And any other suggestions for how to make the um, clinical bedside swallow evaluation most effective? Um, so I'm guessing like maybe they had the patient hold up their cell phone yeah. flashlight to their mouth so that it would add the light in there. Yes. Yes. So uh, uh, these are all very good, uh, quite practical questions. So for the clinical, for the clinical bedside swallow evaluation, um, the really, I mean, and we're talking, I think they're, they're talking mostly about not so much the interview or quality of life questionnaires or things like that. These are pretty easily completed online. Uh, uh, but I think they're talking more about the specific cranial nerve exam and the trial swallows. So for the cranial nerve exam, um, ideally, ideally, what you would want to uh, have available is that the patient on their end have an external camera. If they have an external camera available, uh, then they can move it around, the facilitator and the patient if they're able, they can move it around so that they can bring it closer or further away depending on what you need to see. So for example, when you're examining cranial nerves, uh, you know, cranial nerve seven, and you wanna see a lot of facial movements, for example, all right, or sensitivity for the trigeminal nerve, you wanna see the sensitivity in the face on the, in the mouth, um, then having a kind of a face view and, and um, uh, uh, having the patient or the facilitator move the camera so that you can have a really close front, a face view of the patient is gonna be a must. Um, when you're examining, for example, the villum, uh, you know, villar movement, you're examining a, a number of different nerves there, or the pharynx, um, yes, using the, uh, a flashlight or using the a cell phone as a flashlight could be very useful, while also using the uh, camera, and especially if it's an external camera, then you can move it really easily. If it's a laptop, it's very hard, because you, anytime you're moving it, you're changing, the, the patient cannot see you really well, right? So that's why an external camera, and that, and there, nowadays you can find really cheap ones that are relatively good resolution. Um, so uh, having an external camera, I think, is really, really important so that you can change how close up you are, okay? And using a flashlight, then you can use, see inside the mouth really well. For trial swallows, the lateral view, sitting on the lateral view and placing a, a, a tape, a skin-safe tape on the thyroid notch can actually help you, so if I, if I move, like this, right, in the lateral view, you can probably, and if I move a little closer to the camera, you can probably see my thyroid notch pretty well. If I put a, um, let's say, a red tape or a blue tape here, you can even see it better. So you could actually visually see the swallows. Is it perfect? It's not. But remember, at the bedside, we cannot identify the swallows 100% reliably anyway. So it's not that the telehealth is making this harder, it's already, almost impossible to do with 100% accuracy at the bedside. So, um, uh, so using a lateral uh, seating position, again, if we have an external camera, the patient doesn't need to change their position. You just change the camera. If, if you only have one camera that is attached to the computer, then you will have to turn the patient around. Uh, using a chair that has wheels, it may be a little bit easier to help positioning the patient. Exactly. The facilitator is the, the I see the comment there, the facilitator is the one that really needs to be helping with some of these things with your guidance, right? Um, so that's, and having a list, a lot of times, uh, if we, if you cannot send a tele 
evaluation kit to the patient's home, what you could do is you create a list of the things you want them to have in front of them. So you could say, I want you to have a flashlight or a cell phone. I want you to have a pair of gloves for the facilitator in case you have them touch the patient at different spots in their face, because we also have to consider the safety of the facilitator here as well, right? Um, you could tell them to have specific uh, clear utensils so you can see what they're drinking or eating. Um, you can tell them to have specific items that you want to see them try. Um, and uh, so, th so these are, these are some, some practical things you can, uh, you can consider. And again, there is a section on part C of our web guide that talks about all these steps and probably additional steps as well uh, that could be very, very useful. But these are just some quick ideas about how to do that. Yeah. Fabulous. I loved it. Um, just a little housekeeping note. Um, yes. Dr. Malandraki, is your uh, microphone attached to your like headphone ear? No, is it on a cable? No, no, it is it is um it is internal to the computer, and this is kind of my iMac computer that I use for everything, but can okay. you cannot hear me really well? Well, um then we then I started hearing like some like like rubbing sound and then like oh. tapping or clacking. Let me, I'm gonna, I have some paper here, so I'm gonna move that here. Okay, yeah, I just, I wasn't better? sure. <laughs> no. Okay. Sorry about that, I don't know, yeah. Okay, um, all right, yes, that was great. That was really good in a nutshell. And yeah. um, I wanna remind our listeners that we had Professor Elizabeth Ward on, who um, has also done a lot of work in this area um, out of the University of Queensland in Australia. Yeah. And she went really like step-by-step step and all the things like in very, very detail. Um, so that was another episode that we had on with talking teletherapy. So if you're here for this one, you can um, check that one out too. That's um, on the Speech Therapy PD website as well. And of course, on the, on the, aired on the podcast. So and I, and I will say that Dr. Ward and her group, they have done most of the research on, tele, on teleclinical swallow assessments. So uh, they also have an e-learning module that is free for clinicians. I was going to mention it later on. Uh, but uh, that I think is really, really good as well as a resource. So that's another resource that uh, is available and has been available the last few months and wasn't before that. So that's really great. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And one of the things I found so interesting is that, um, like you, she's been doing this work for a while. You know, they didn't just hop on this when we had a worldwide pandemic and we were kind of forced into the situation. Um, Australia is such a huge continent, so very spread out. They have a lot of rural areas. So they had been considering how can we provide consistent services to people that would otherwise have to travel very far distances for like a session a week. Um, so they've been looking into this, doing research and applying it for a while now. So that's really cool because you know me coming into this i i'm like okay this is new i didn't know you know people had been studying this researching it and doing it for so long so yeah and and the good thing about australia is they didn't have the regulatory restrictions we have here yep. so the research from our lab has been uh, and and from the us has been uh, you know uh, it hasn't been in the extent they are doing there but part of that is has been there's so many restrictions here that has made, have made it really, really difficult. And mm -hmm. it took a pandemic for some of these restrictions to be waived. I, I, yeah. just hope, I just hope we can make it permanent. We have to prove that we, we can do this well enough. And that has been my uh, uh, anxiety a little bit that, you know, I know we're jumping into this, but we have to make sure we're doing it well enough so that 
people see the benefit and hopefully we can make some of these allowances and uh, waivers of restrictions permanent. Yes, yes, absolutely. I agree. Um, I think it would, um, if, I, if I think about it looking forward, I think it would be a really great service delivery model for people who, um, for example, have to travel a distance to go to a specialty hospital. They have something very unique going on, so they need to go to, you know, one of those um, destination mm -hmm. hospitals, if you will but then they need to go home, but they need to follow up with that treatment. And so they might be able to continue that via telehealth or when they go back home and they're working with their speech pathologist in their community, that speech pathologist can um, tag in the SLP, you know, who maybe was part of that service at that destination hospital and we can improve. And it, it's expected communication and billable time, you know, and it's not something extra we have to do to tag onto our day. So I think that exactly, would... exactly. I mean, there are many, many benefits, and I just hope that uh, people and government will see that, and hopefully, <laughs> sometimes we have to better. help them see it, and we have yes. to advocate. <laughs> we have to absolutely, and and, and there is there is a lot of uh, uh, energy being devoted right now at the state level, at the national level. I feel this is the time. This is the time to act. Uh, ASHA has to take uh, take action. Uh, link that they very recently, I think this last week they sent an email out. I hope most people, if not everybody, received it. So please, please take action. It takes five minutes to come, less than five minutes to just complete your name and um, advocate for this because this, this is the time. The momentum is here. A lot of uh, uh, U.S. legislators are starting to push for permanent change. That wasn't the, that wasn't the case before. So this is the time to to push harder and advocate harder, absolutely. Yeah, I think sometimes I get in my mind that, um, well, this is just something we're doing in a pinch. This is this is a temporary measure. We can we can go back to normal, you know, quote unquote, yeah. when this is all over, quote unquote. <laughs> and um, yeah. but we can see the potential for this to continue and to grow and to to help us provide better services um, exactly. to people who can't always come in and see us. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of pluses here. Um, absolutely. That we should not not think of as a temporary measure oh i just need to learn this and do this for a short period of time like this could have really positive outcomes for our profession exactly all right um my next question um do do you do you want to take a minute and direct people to any of that research coming out that you think people would find helpful um for either kind of the ethics or the safety considerations or the how to because um, I know you're very involved in the research aspect as well. Yeah, so I think the, um, as I said, a lot of uh, uh, more kind of practical guidelines papers are going to be coming out very soon. Uh, there is a special issue uh, that the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology, one of the ASUS journal, is going to be publishing within the next two months. And uh, it will be specific on COVID-related topics, but within that issue, there will be uh, quite a few telehealth papers. Um, SIG-13 and SIG-18, uh, which are the dysphagia and the telepractice, uh, you know, special interest groups of ASHA, also are pushing for more uh, information coming to come out. Uh, so I think uh, those perspectives are going to be really helpful as well in terms of guidelines and things like that. In terms of um, uh, active research, uh, I, I can tell you what we have uh, uh, been doing and what we have been, how we are now changing a little bit what we had been doing. 
but in the last about three to four years, we have been really invested in wearable technology for a remote service delivery for dysphagia specifically. Um, um, and we have been collaborating with some really great biomedical engineers here at Purdue, um, creating some wearable devices uh, uh, that uh, can be worn at home and provide some really important signals uh, to the patient themselves for biofeedback, but also those signals can be transmitted to the clinicians via cloud servers. So that's, that's a whole area of research that we have been very invested in for the past three to four years. We have uh, several grants, including NIH grants, investigating that. Um, and we're, we're continuing to do that. We're in the clinical trial stage, but of course this has been a little delayed because due to COVID, we can't actively see, collect data yet with patients. Um, in person, but we, we're working uh, on that and we'll see how we can kind of bypass that hopefully soon. The other area that we, we hadn't been as active, but we're starting to be very active now, and this is collaborative work with uh, some colleagues at, uh, um, and uh, specifically Dr. Michelle Troche at uh, uh, Teachers College Columbia University. We are, um, we're starting a study where we're gonna, we're gonna try to see uh, um, the remote services, the way they're offered now, which is not the kind of the real world, uh, in, in this real world uh, emergency situation, um, how, how are, these, are these effective or not? What are the main obstacles that people are facing? Um, what are some ways we may be able to enhance or help those services so, um, so that we can, w that are hopefully low cost and, and low technology, so that we, low tech, so that we can, um, uh, that people can find them at home or we can send uh, them uh, easily to them. They're not uh, super expensive. Um, so we are doing the, we're starting this study that we're gonna look at today's situation and how uh, services are being delivered and what are ways to enhance these services. I can't share too many details yet because it's now starting, uh, but we are, uh, we are, we just started collecting some data through our clinics, both, uh, our clinic here at Purdue and uh, um, at Columbia uh, with our first uh, data. So we're, we're hoping that through this, we'll be able to give more guidance and more in real world situations. A lot of the research that has been done, both in Australia and in the US in the past, from Lisa's group, from my group, from other groups as well, has been done under very well controlled conditions, right? With enough training, enough time for training, with very good trained, uh, very well-trained facilitators, um, but now we're dealing with something very different. We're in a real-world condition. So we're trying to see what's happening now and how can we make this better, but make sure that it is still practically and clinically feasible. Uh, so that's, that's something that's coming out. We have, um, you're giving me the opportunity to say to everybody that we have a couple of surveys, online surveys that will be going out in the next few weeks. So I'm hoping a lot of people complete them and give us information. Uh, we'll have a service for clinicians and for patients, um, in addition to collecting some of those experimental data that I'm, uh, I'm talking about. So there is more of that coming out. There probably are more, a lot of other groups are, are, have contacted me asking about, you know, how do I do remote research and all of these things. So there's going to be more and more, I think, remote related research that's coming out from other labs as well. But this is what we have in the, in the works. Excellent. Um, it just warms my little clinician heart to hear a researcher say that you are interested and passionate about making sure that your research is applicable yeah. 
you know, that you're just not answering a question that you have that you need to test a theory on. You want to see how that translates for us in the real world. Like, <laughs> Dr. Melandraki, thank you so much. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm a clinician as well. So although I, you know, I am in academia, I, I still see patients. Once uh, I, I don't have the time to see them as frequently as you guys. Of course, I'm not in the trenches. Uh, and I'm very thankful to all of you who, who do that, especially those of you in the front lines. Uh, but I still evaluate patients once a, once a month. And I, I help guide our uh, treatment clinic, which is once a week. So uh, I, I think it's really important. Uh, otherwise, it's research for research, and it's never going to really get, get anywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the first area of research that you mentioned, um, yeah. where you're developing and testing um, sensors yes. that uh, the patient would wear. So, um, so correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm picturing this scenario. The patient is at home. In the mail, they've gotten these sensors with instructions on how and where to place, and they're going to be in specific locations on their throat or submandibular area. Yes, so we, we, we have been developing a lot of different types of devices, but the first one, the one that has received a lot of attention is the one you are kind of describing, which is a wearable sticker. It's really a sticker, it's a sticker patch that has uh, surface electromyography sensors. So these are sensors that identify muscle activity. Uh, they also have a strain sensor in them so that they can identify movement of the thyroid notch. So that sticker patch specifically has been designed so that people can stick it uh, in the submental area under the chin, and, um, uh, and it can record muscle activity information from the submental muscles that we know are very active during the pharyngeal stage of the swallow. Now, in terms of uh, how this whole thing will, uh, the scenario of how the patient will get the sensors, the sensors will be provided from the clinician. And uh, uh, so they're not going to be just receiving them at home and we can- Oh, them. right. Sorry. Yeah. In my head. Home. In no, my head, they were mailed by the clinician. Yeah. So that's, that is a really good point. But um, because, uh, you know, I am a stickler for evidence-based practice and I'm a clinician as well, I need to make sure that that point is very, uh, is well communicated, that um, these are going to be used only in, in situations where the clinician believes that the use of SEMG is going to be beneficial for biofeedback, with, uh, to provide biofeedback for swallowing exercises will be beneficial for that patient. So the, the clinician will receive training on how to uh, position the sensors and uh, how to collect data and all of that. So there is a, a whole clinician setup first before the person, the patient will take the sensors at home with them. But yes, ideally that is the scenario is that the person will have the sensors at home. They will be wearing them at a specific time when they are supposed to be doing their exercises as prescribed by their clinician. And um, we have now uh, developed our prototype software app that um, is, connecting, uh, is connected to the sensors wirelessly, and it can provide immediate biofeedback to the patient about how they're doing. We are now developing the cloud-based service that, we will, that will um, be used so that data can be transmitted to the clinician simultaneously as well. So the clinician can have access to what the patient is doing and will be able to see are they doing it okay or not. They will have control over changing the prescription of the exercises as well as the patient progresses so that the patient doesn't have to come weekly in the clinic if they don't need to for other reasons, for example. So uh, the idea is that it will simplify um, uh, how the patient is doing their exercises, how the, the clinician is monitoring, uh, moder uh, is, uh, monitoring I'm sorry, uh, pay, uh, exercise adherence, which is a big topic uh, lately. Um, 
And at the same time, it will free up more clinician time to see more patients and things like that. So there's a whole setup. Again, it's, it's, we are in very early stages, but that is the idea behind the, that first set of wearable sensors. We are developing a few other ones that are in much earlier stages, uh, but that's the one that is closer to the market. And we're hoping that within a year or so, if everything runs a little bit faster after fall, uh, we will have the first version available for clinical, for big uh, clinical trials among different clinics. Cool, that's really exciting. That sounds really fun, I like that. Um, yeah, because, uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I haven't used any SEMG types of products because um, there are some out there. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I saw a demo from one company whose name escapes me. Um, and you know, it connected to a machine or, you know, a computer that also was on wheels. And so it had a screen yes. and for example, you know, it would measure the intensity of the use of the muscles. And then it would on the screen, it might be like, a kangaroo and the yeah. stronger you swallowed or, or used those muscles that it was on yeah the higher the kangaroo would jump yeah um so how how is what you're developing and working on kind of different from that or because you know that's a, a form of biofeedback so the patient can see that yeah. and they're getting that like kind mm -hmm. of instant feedback okay that was a strong swallow that's the target i, I want to hit i need to continue to do that to yeah. achieve my exercise principles. Um, tell me a little bit more. Yeah, so that's a very good question. And uh, so the, the differences are in a couple of things. Number, the, the most important difference is in the development of the actual, uh, the, the hardware, the, the hardware of the sensors. A lot of the sensors that are being used right now with a lot of SEMG systems um, are sensors that have been primarily designed for the limb muscles. They're rigid. Uh, they're re really large, you know. Um, our sensors have been developed specifically for the submental muscles area. They have been developed with optimal intra-electrode distance uh, pertaining to the muscle physiology. And uh, uh, so they, they have been designed with uh, uh, a lot of specificity about the specific muscles and the specific area you want to target. Mm -hmm. If you ever try to put uh, regular EMG electrodes that are widely available under the chin area, you will see that first of all, they're pretty heavy. So they will be dragging the skin down, number mm -hmm. one. So mm -hmm. that's causing artifact right away. Mm -hmm. um, you, so they're rather heavy. Uh, most of them are very rigid, so they're not conforming to the skin perfectly. Sometimes they fall. With uh, things like saliva and drooling, they don't stick that well, depends of course on how much adhesive you're gonna use and they have used in their stickers, right? So we created a sensor that is specifically, you know, with, we took muscle physiology into account, we took, you know, basic science into account, we did a lot of pilot studies to ensure that it's specific for that submental area and those specific muscles. So that's one key difference. The other difference is that this is, um, and we made sure that it has, uh, it's made of material that will stick even with saliva, even mm -hmm. with food, uh, relatively well, uh, so that it's durable for multiple uses as well. So the, so the hardware, the hardware is the main difference. That the other thing we made sure is that, as I said before, we also include on the same patch that has the EMG sensors, the muscle activity sensors, a strain sensor that can give you information about when the swallow actually happened. Um, 
EMG activity, EMG sensors in general, surface EMG sensors are very prone to artifacts and to noise. Even if you move your head like this, they will still pick up noise that will sometimes look very much the signal like a swallow without being a swallow. So having a way to uh, at least confirm or partially confirm when the actual swallow happened, if you're doing swallowing exercises, is, is also a key feature. So we, we have included that in the patch as well. So the hardware is very different. In terms of the software and the functionalities, it's a very similar. Meaning, yes, we work on muscle strength and we work, we work on, uh, we also have exercises related to timing because that's another component uh, uh, and duration and things like that, that a lot of times uh, we need to work on when we want to improve motor skill for swallowing. So in terms of the functionalities, these are all of these devices do, I think, very similar things, but the hardware is the main key difference. Mm, okay, thank you. That really, yeah, that clarified that for me. Um, it's cool to, to hear about the creation of the patch and the sensors and how it's different and what you were focused on measuring versus the other ones like that that differentiated it for me a lot better so i see a question mm -hmm. are these sensors only sensors or emg sensors only or also muscle activation stimulators so right now they're only sensors we can very easily make them muscle activation stimulators um, if we wanted to, I, I personally have not yet seen the research to believe that, uh, you know, a neuromuscular stimulation is very effective or more effective than what we could do with biofeedback and regular swallowing therapy. When I see that uh, research, I, it will be very easy. We, actually, the engineer that I'm working with, he wanted to create stimulators right away. And I said, wait a minute. No, not yet. Uh, let's let's see some of that research and maybe later on. But it's it's it, we can very easily do that as well. Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, before I ask my next question, I just yes. wanted to remind our participants okay. um, that now's a good time to ask all those burning questions you have for Dr. Melandraki. Um, we're kind of in the Q and A portion of our session, but listen, I got questions, so I'm going to keep going <laughs> until you type in those questions for me. Um, okay. So. The next area I wanted to go into was in looking at your lab's website at yes. purdue.edu. Um, you talked about having asynchronous or store and forward telehealth applications in performing dysphagia teleconsultations to improve quality of care in settings where an expert swallowing specialist is not an available. Um, could you talk a little bit more about yeah. that aspect of your work? Yeah, so asynchronous uh, telehealth basically means that you, as, as you just said, you, uh, you store and then transmit the information, whatever that is. It could be an image, it could be a video or audio or recording to somebody else, to another professional for interpretation. And we have done, I have done a lot of, I, I still do a lot of teleconsultations like that uh, with my home country, Greece. I have a, a, a very... Uh, uh, close collaboration with the, big, the biggest hospital in, uh, in Greece, um, where they have their swallowing team that we help them develop. And a lot of times, when, especially when they have really difficult cases, they will video record uh, the video fluoroscopy uh, assessment, as well as some, sometimes the clinical assessment as well, uh, if that's possible. And then they will upload the information on a cloud server that is uh, secure and I will have access to it and I will review it. And then we have kind of a, like a grand rounds meeting where I provide some consultation to them. 
Uh, we did a study actually with that hospital in the very early stages when we started this a few years ago, and we showed that um, a consultation provided from somebody who was more knowledgeable in dysphagia, because that was a very new service to them and to the physicians there, actually changed the, the, the treatment plan for about 50% of the cases and improved it. So, uh, so we have, and that, that paper has been published. So um, there, there is evidence that teleconsultation can be really, really useful. The problem with that is the billing component that comes into place in addition to safety and regulatory components. But that is, that is, that is something that can definitely be used and I think is probably underutilized because probably of the billing issues. Um, but maybe if we if provide more evidence, that can change as well. The other way asynchronous telehealth can be helpful is in, in, in the context of the clinical swallowing assessments and the questions we have received. Um, a lot of times, if the connection is not very good, or if the camera, there is, there is no external camera and you cannot really get a, a flashlight into the mouth at the moment you're doing the clinical eval, a lot of times what you could ask is, if a patient can video record it with their phone. Nowadays, phones have fantastic cameras, especially newer phones, right? And you can ask them to video record a portion of the clinical exam that you could not see really well and send it to you later on. Again, you have to consider how they're gonna send it to you, how they're gonna, you're gonna make sure it's safe and secure and all of that. Um, but asynchronous telehealth can be used uh, partially uh, you know, uh, as, as to, to supplement or to facilitate synchronous methods as well. And then, as I said, with teleconsultation, we have pretty good evidence that it can be really, really useful, especially in settings that they don't have an expert available or somebody who has extensive expertise in, in, uh, in the stage. Yeah, yeah. I think we will all, if we haven't already, <laughs> I'm sure it's coming around the corner, been confronted by um, a patient or a presentation that's a head scratcher. And, um, yes. and it's so helpful to be able to tag in another SLP and say, what are your thoughts on this? And if you're the only provider at a location, you yes. know, what are you going to do? You can't go to your colleague who's in the same building with you. Like we, yeah. I think this would be really, really helpful, as you mentioned, in improving patient outcomes if we do have that capability to securely and confidentially protecting patient um, privacy, to be able to, to have a consultative model to support clinicians who might be the only practitioner in a building. Absolutely. Again, you have to look at state-by-state -state regulations, but that's totally possible. And I mean, consultations can be, I mean, most of the times it could be something with the facility, uh, that contract between the facility and, and an expert. Mm -hmm. So that it doesn't have to be a, a, a billing thing for the clinician to, cons to, to, to worry about. Mm -hmm. So there, there, are, there are ways to do things like that. Creative ways, I would say. Yeah, but there are ways to do that. All right. Um, so now I want to ask you a little bit more um, yes. about your lab's website. Yes. Um, at the very beginning, you mentioned that that's where you have a lot of these guidelines on um, providing um, dysphagia services via telepractice. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some other things, other resources that you have on your website? Uh, well, right now, you know, I, th those are the main kind of resources that are out that are, that are there, um, and we have focused on telehealth specifically because of the uh, because of what is happening with the pandemic and the urgent need to for that to uh, to be picked up by a lot of clinicians. Um, we have, but within those guidelines, I would say we have a lot of forms 
we have examples of what needs to be included in a consent form. We have forms of how uh, to talk to facilitators and train facilitators for the different uh, settings you work in. Um, so there are quite a few uh, gems in there. Uh, so I would, I would suggest for those of you who are really uh, seriously interested in this area or are using it, to really browse the website. It won't take you that long. We're actually, um, we just collected all the information and we're creating an ebook so that all the information will be in one place so people can just download it. And within the next, before the end of July, we will also have some video demos available uh, for a lot of those questions about how do I specifically do this or how do I uh, do, do that. So we will have, that will also be available before the end of the month. Um, uh, right now, the, the, the rest of the website is really mostly to educate people about what we do and who we are uh, and, uh, and advertise our research. So you will see a lot of recruitment flyers for different studies. Um, you will also see information about the Purdue IE clinic, uh, which is one of the uh, first and uh, fully comprehensive swallowing clinics in a, in a university setting outside a medical setting, because we don't have a, med a big medical setting here in West Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, so we've created our own uh, clinic. We have uh, our own C-arm, fluoroscopy unit, our own fees equipment, everything. Uh, so you can, you can get information about our clinic and how to refer patients to us as well. Um, so th those are the main resources right now, but you're bringing up a really good point. We are now uh, considering of uh, starting to provide more and more resources on the website. Um, very recently, we created a YouTube channel. So we're hoping to start providing more videos, uh, different presentations. Uh, uh, so we, we, we will, we will uh, hopefully soon provide more and more resources. One more resource that I wanna mention um, and I have been part of is, as you mentioned at the very beginning, I am a member of the new um, COVID-19 uh, task force of the Dysphagia Research Society. And I am a board member of the Dysphagia Research Society as well. And uh, DRS has uh, now provided a full page with a, links to many, many resources uh, that have been vetted by the committee. Um, and a new uh, paper will also be coming, coming out in the Dysphagia Journal with guidelines, uh, not only on telehealth, but on COVID-related issues that are related to dysphagia specifically. So a lot more will be coming out soon fr from DRS and uh, from our website as well. Excellent, very good. Um, yeah, that's great. I was just thinking, um, I feel like a lot, there are a lot of different kind of places to go for information. And it's so helpful um, to know that DRS has, yes. as you mentioned, vetted these resources. They agree, they're in alignment, they're best practice. Um, and then they've got them all in one place. That is very helpful. And it's being updated regularly too. Excellent, very good. All right, um, I guess there are no more questions. So I think that's everything. Dr. Malandraki, this was a dream. Thank you so much oh, for coming. I, 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 ho I hope today. it was useful and I hope you could hear me okay. DRS <laughs> is Dysphagia Research Society. Mm -hmm. Yes, if you like dysphagia, look into DRS. Yes. That is Please. like, it is the thing. <laughs> yes. And if you have any questions about DRS, uh, please let me know. I'm more than happy to uh, provide information. Mm -hmm. It is, um, DRS has a yearly, 
uh, meeting, gathering, conference, uh, meeting of the minds. Like if you love dysphagia and you want to meet the people who are movers and shakers in dysphagia, like that's where they all meet and talk shop. <laughs> so Exactly. And everybody's uh, rather friendly and we, we love uh, talking to clinicians who are in the trenches and learning more about what they do and collaborating with them. Uh, we're, there are going to be a lot of changes uh, in the society. So we're going to be, uh, it's going to be a lot more open to clinicians than it used to be. So, uh, and because you mentioned the annual meeting, you give me a pass to mention one more thing very quickly for DRS. Uh, and believe me, I have nothing to gain by saying this. <laughs> My position at DRS is completely vol voluntary, of course. Um, but the, the annual meeting this year, because it had to be canceled, unfortunately, it was in Puerto Rico. Uh, but now, part of the annual meeting, a lot of the talks for the annual meeting are now online and they're offered for a really, really reduced price. So if you want to hear from the leaders in the area about some current issues, um, this is a great time to uh, take advantage of these webinars that are now available. Excellent. All right. Super. We always love hearing about other places to go and absorb knowledge. So thanks for great. sharing that. Great. Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Um, I hope you found this as helpful as I did. I loved it. Um, have a good evening. Thank you so much. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you for joining us on Talking Teletherapy. Remember to visit our website, speechtherapypd.com teletherapy for information about upcoming episodes and webinars. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. If you would like a discount on a pod course membership to speechtherapypd.com to earn the ASHA CEUs, enter in the coupon code TALKING20 for $20 off the pod course membership. Thanks for joining us and have a great week.